there's a widespread belief amounting almost to a cultural assumption in many influential circles that assigns to religion and religious difference an inherent tendency to violence. An extreme expression that encapsulates this and much else is Christopher Hitchens' subtitle to the American publication of his book, God is Not Great. The subtitle was How Religion Poisons Everything. And many more examples could be cited. And they are indeed cited in uh, uh, Bill Kavanagh's book, uh, The Myth of Religious Violence. So I won't go into them. The assumption also carries with it the thought that religion is predominant or even unique in embodying the tendency to violence. In the case of terrorism and certain forms of outright warfare that include it, the history of the late 20th century and early 21st century has seen a great deal of terrorism that is widely and understandably viewed as principally religiously inspired, and in fact principally inspired by one specific religion, uh, so that the expressions Islamic terrorism and militant Islamic terrorism and many other similar titles have become familiar coinage in the 21st century, especially in the discourse and public imagination of citizens in Western democracies. The attacks of September 11, 2001, plus subsequent atrocities, most recently the Sri Lankan tragedy, <coughs> have contributed to producing or popularising this picture of religious violence as particularly concentrated upon Muslim faith. And this focus is already loaded with a specific version of the assumption about religion that I want to subject to critical examination. I'll begin first of all with the assumption that religion is somehow inherently and perhaps uniquely or distinctively prone to violence and then examine the way this supposed tendency is linked to terrorist actions. Later, I will discuss the weaker thesis that, as a matter of fact, religion has on occasion been the cause of terrorism, before moving on to the claim that even when religion is not a cause of terrorist acts, religious motivation is characteristically and uniquely responsible for some distinctive and unwelcome features of terrorist campaigns. This latter thesis is, in many respects, an echo of the comment long ago by that very eminent religious thinker, Blaise Pascal, who said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction, end of quote. Pascal's comments show clearly that the thesis and the wider assumptions are not restricted to the non-religious or the anti-religious. Religion and violence. First of all, some words about Kavanagh's critique. The assumption that some sort of distinctive and intrinsic link between religion and violence and the implications thereof uh, for such issues as terrorism have started to come under scrutiny in recent years, most radically in William Kavanagh's writings, culminating in his important book, The Myth of Religious Violence. I will here have to omit a long discussion of the difficulties of defining religion and of the, the details of Bill Kavanagh's response to these difficulties by rejecting the concept of religion. He sees that, uh, the concept of religion, in his book as a sort of pseudo-concept developed only after the Enlightenment, which characterises religion as a phenomenon separate from the rest of life and isolable as the often inherent cause of violence. Against this, I argue, though I won't repeat the arguments here, that his historical claim about the late emergence, uh, claims about the late emergence of the concept are false, that abandoning the concept and hence showing the incoherence of the violence claims is unwarranted in spite of the real difficulties of definition. Yet even were the concept of religion a late addition to our vocabulary, and even a construction used for various socio-political purposes inimical to particular faiths, as Kavanagh believes, it wouldn't follow that it fails to mark out anything interesting and even valuable for contemporary discourse. I suppose the concept of virtual reality is unknown before the 20th century, 
and may even have been coined with a dangerous bias against actual reality that should give us pause. Even so, the concept marks a significant phenomenon in our real lives that can't be ignored and has obvious utility for analysing and discussing new technical and social developments and may even illuminate past realities. Indeed, I argue that it's possible to proceed with investigation of claims about religion's role in violence using some paradigms and forms of what I call flexible social focal meaning. In that investigation, though I won't develop what I mean by uh, focal meaning, uh, I shall take Kavanagh's critique uh, from his critique, the insight detachable from his conceptual pessimism that religion cannot in general be considered as a factor in life quite isolated from a range of other human commitments and identifications, such as those due to political, social, sexual, racial and biological outlooks. To take, a terrorist, uh, to take the terrorist activities, uh, sorry, sections called How a Focus on Religious Motivation Obscures Complex Realities. To take the terrorist activities of contemporary Islamic fundamentalists as simply manifestations of religion, for instance, is to ignore the way that their religious commitments complement and intersect with political outlooks and grievances that would make perfect sense to non-religious people if only they took the trouble to examine them without the blinkered conviction that the cause of the violence is wholly religious. One who's made such an examination is Robert Pape, who has argued that close attention to the motives and backgrounds of suicide bombers uh, from 1980 to 2003, a total of 315 attacks, excluding those commissioned by states, strongly suggests that religion was then, at any rate, a sel a seldom a significant factor in motivations. Pape has more recently upgraded his database and has now examined 2,000 cases of suicide bombing with similar conclusions. He sums up his initial findings uh, as follows. The data, quote, the data shows that there is little connection between suicide terrorism and Islamic fundamentalism or any one of the world's religions. Rather, what nearly all suicide terrorist attacks have in common is a specific secular and strategic goal to compel modern democracies to withdraw military forces from territory that the terrorists consider their homeland. Religion is rarely the root cause, although it's often used as a tool by terrorist organisations in recruiting and in other efforts in service of the broader strategic objective." Unquote. Inevitably, Pape's work and methodology have come under criticism, especially his strong claims about the unique role of foreign intervention and occupation in provoking terrorist attacks. Nonetheless, his basic claims about the relatively slight or secondary nature of the religious motivation in most suicide bombings examined compared to perfectly earthly motivations, give serious thought for, uh, food for thought about the ready resort to religion as the cause of terrorist acts. Similar scepticism about prevailing views regarding the predominant role of religious faith in generating contemporary suicide bombing and terrorism has been expressed by the anthropologist Scott Atran, who says in his book Talking to the Enemy that his extensive investigations, including many interviews with terrorists themselves, show that, quote, Islam and religious ideology per se aren't the principal causes of suicide bombing and terror in today's world." Unquote. Atran, who is himself an avowed atheist, thinks that the more important factors are bound up with the sense of identification with a peer group who, are, uh, who have developed strong feelings of outrage at what they see as examples of cultural and political domination over those with whom they identify. Atran and other investigators have often remarked on how superficial the understanding of any version of Islamic religion is with most of the young men drawn to the violent struggle called jihad. 
This superficiality has been borne out in examinations of the views of many Western-born recruits to ISIS in the terrorist activities of this appalling group in Syria and Iraq. A study of, US, uh, a study of ISIS volunteers who returned to their original Western countries was carried out for the United Nations Office of Counterterrorism in 2017 and found that despite claiming to protect Muslims, most of the return fighters were novices in their religion and some did not know even how to pray properly. Study by Professor Hamad Al-Sayed of Manchester Metropolitan University and terrorism expert Richard Barrett found that most of the would-be jihadists, quote, lack any basic understanding of the true meaning of jihad or even of the Islamic faith itself, end quote. These studies suggest at least four things that the focus on religion's supposed special tendency towards violence tends to obscure. One, religions have played no significant part in many extreme outbreaks of violence. Surely obvious that there have been many dreadful outbreaks of unjustified violence or terrorism, the causal or motivational origins of which have nothing to do with religion. Pol, Pol Pot, Mao, Hitler and Stalin in our own era were responsible for staggering massacres, most of them palpably terrorist uh, by my definition, that cannot be attributed to their authors' religious inclinations or that of their followers. Other ideologies, including democratic ones, can play a significant role. Second point, other ideologies, including democratic ones, can play a significant role in promoting violence. Not only are there many outbreaks of political and other forms of violence that have little or nothing to do with religion, but as some of the conflicts cited above show, non-religious worldviews, ideological outlooks, what Rawls calls comprehensive doctrines, are sometimes themselves plausible candidates for playing an important role in causing or motivating widespread violence. They are often exempted from the odium put upon religious motivations in connection with violence and terrorism. Most recently, of course, the shocking slaughter of 50 people in two Muslim mosques in New Zealand by a right-wing neo-Nazi nationalist, Australian of course, has tended to redress the balance, a balance that should have been already tilted away from religion by such other massacres motivated by neo-Nazi ideology, such as that of Anders Breivik in Norway. Even those who admit the bombings of German and Japanese cities culminating in the atomic destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were terrorists, as I would, do not talk of democratic terrorism or democratic extremism, even though the defence of democracy and its values was an element in the motivation of the attacks. By contrast, at the height of the Northern Irish Troubles, there was a tendency to ignore the economic, imperialist and nationalist aspects behind the conflict and speak exclusively of Catholic terrorism or Protestant terrorism. As for the contemporary relevance of certain forms of democratic ideology to extreme political violence, we could cite the neocon project of bringing democracy to the Middle East that played a part in the violent and I think palpably unjustified invasion of Iraq. Nor should we ignore the democratic rhetoric of defending our liberties that surrounds the war on terror, <coughs> a war that includes the resort to torture and drone attacks on Pakistan and Afghanistan and elsewhere, which have killed so many innocent people as to come close to what I've called neo-terrorism and even on some occasions direct terrorism. Three, the focus on religion can obscure more mundane and specific causes of conflict, even where they're not specifically ideological. Quite apart from obscuring the role of non-religious outlooks in the outbreak of terrorism, the focus on religion as a major cause of wars, terrorism and other forms of political violence obscures many of the more mundane and specific causes of violent conflict that political leaders and many of the rest of us find inconvenient to acknowledge. 
Such grievances may be relatively independent of ideology. This is true even in those instances where there are issues of religion regularly invoked by the leaders of the campaigns of violence and used to some degree to motivate their followers. Osama bin Laden's various diatribes referring to holy duties and caliphates also contain numerous claims about straightforward political grievances, such as Israel's occupation of Palestinian land, Israeli military policing and political persecution, as he saw it, of Palestinian people, claims about past and present Western support for Middle Eastern dictatorships and Western exploitation of Middle Eastern assets, such as oil, the United States' historic deployment of troops through Arab lands, and more recently, the US-led invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. A fascinating example of the way invocations of religious explanations can come to dominate and distort our understanding of violent outbreaks and, obscure and, and thereby obscure specific political motivation is to be found in Peter Wilson's recent huge book, A History of the Thirty Years' War. Wilson, rejects the, uh, Wilson argues that this war, so often invoked as the archetypical uh, religious war, the duration of which was caused by religious fanaticism, was, quote, not primarily a religious war at all, unquote. There were, of course, religious elements. It could hardly have been otherwise in 17th century Europe, where Christian faith was an aspect of life integrated to varying degrees with other central aspects. But most contemporary observers spoke, quote, spoke of imperial Bavarian, Swedish, or Bohemian troops, not Catholic or Protestant. The war indeed began with a somewhat religious episode, the famous de uh, defenestration, but its real causes and ferocity and duration were not due, argues Wilson, to religious fanaticism, but dynastic ambition and political fissure. Uh, people know what the defenestration was? Some do. It, this is my amusing joke I was going to leave out, but I can't. <laughs> so I'm warning you it's a joke, so you've got to laugh. Uh, the defenestration occurred in Prague in 1617 when three imperial officials, Catholics all, were flung out of a window 50 feet above the ground by a group of armed Protestants angry at the Catholic Habsburg rule in the Holy Roman Empire. On one popular, though probably sadly apocryphal account, they fell calling on the Virgin Mary for help. Amazingly, they escaped death from this huge height by falling in a dung heap and survived to warn the emperor of his disquiet. I suspect that this surprising event will fill many in the audience with amusement rather than the dung heap part, rather than a respect for the efficacy of prayer. I will only remark that the two reactions are not incompatible. God may very well have something like a sense of humour and a robust, robust appreciation of the ridiculous. Indeed, I think he has. As one reviewer of the book summarised the argument about the causes of the length of the conflict, the empire's hundreds of small territories were cash poor. To fight, they assumed impossible debts, adulterated their coinages, and triggered a ruinous inflation. Unpaid armies could neither be supplied nor disbanded. They thus remained in the field, nourished on plunder rather than religion. Religions are, number four, religions are a very diverse phenomenon. Simple credos about a strong connection of religion with war and terrorism ignore too many distinctions between and within religions themselves. There are and have been all sorts of different religions with a great many different practices, ethical commitments and changes over the course of their histories. It may well be that some religions or some versions of the same religion are prone to spur their adherence towards violence, 
where other religions or other versions of the same religion have no such tendency. This is an issue that needs to be resolved by detailed historical and sociological investigations. Loose talk about Islamic terrorism needs just such attention. But even if it could be shown that versions of Islam such as Osama bin Laden's, or even more plausibly, that of the ISIS militants, had an inherent commitment to unjustified violence, including terrorism, this might have little or no relevance, for instance, to the, to the Sufi version of Islam, nor to a great deal of mainstream Muslim believers, whether they profess Sunni or Shia or some other variant of the doctrine. This is obvious enough to casual observation of Muslim citizens in various parts of the world, but evidence of it is available in the results of surveys, such as the findings of a 2011 Gallup poll. This poll investigated attitudes towards attacks upon non-combatants in various groups across the world. It avoided the word terrorism or terrorist because of definitional problems, but they polled attitudes to attacks upon civilians, so their findings are clearly relevant uh, uh, to terrorist acts as I define them, which you don't know about, but just take my word for that. They found in this poll that, quote, placing high importance on religion generally relates positively with rejecting violence. Religious intolerance, a function of less, not more, religion, is generally associated with greater sympathy for attacks on civilians, unquote. The crucial point that underlies these four considerations is that a primary factor in many outbreaks of violence is attachment to identity and alarm at perceived threats to it. Religion certainly provides one focus for this attachment and alarm, but so do a great many other things. Identity is closely related to power, self-respect, and perceived cultural positioning, so that religion will often be appropriated to bolster or create culturally significant identities for those who have or want power or are in need of group-based support. The relations between the sexes provides a case in point. The fashioning of male identity with often dominant roles over, female, over against females has been a feature of history to which religion has certainly contributed, but it seems to be even more diverse and deeper sociologically than any religious influence. In some Islamic communities and in the fanatically militant groups waging jihad against the modern world, for instance, the punitive obsession with hiding women from view within the home and in all covering clothing, as well as denying them education and other cultural opportunities, is arguably as much an exercise of male domination as of religious piety, whatever explicit appeals to interpretations of religious teaching or tradition may be made. It's worth noting that the major religions, in terms of numbers of adherents, and many less popular religions, contain a great deal of teaching about the importance of values like peace and charity. Peace is a complex concept with many interpretations and conceptions built around it over the ages. Without being an expert on comparative religion, I would conjecture that there are very few religions that, that don't make the value of peace a significant part of their doctrine. Augustine, for instance, places at the heart of his Christocentric ethical system, along with love. It's true that, as with many Christ other Christians and non-Christians, he thought that compatible with the idea of a just war in certain circumstances, though other Christians have thought that it required pacifism. Certainly there's room for peacemakers and activists to build upon doctrines of peace within many religions, and they do. I come to an important objection. It may be urged against much of the above discussion that whatever the success it has against the idea that religious alliance is inherently, uniquely, or even merely commonly prone to produce violence, it does nothing to dispel the accusation that on occasion religion may be the cause or the principal cause of particular outbreaks of, religious, of terrorist acts or other acts of unjustified violence nor does it damage the claim 
that some specific forms or interpretations of religion may, be, may themselves be inherently prone to violence. I now want to examine these uh, propositions. On the first proposition, many will cite contemporary or near-contemporary events frequently referred to, as we mentioned above, as Islamic, Islamic terrorism. We've already seen scepticism about uh, reason for scepticism about this appellation with regard to the causes of much terrorism that is frequently given that label. But although we can often find that leaders of groups such as Al-Qaeda cite as reasons for their ca campaigns alleged offences of a palpably political nature against groups or regions they identify with, it cannot be denied they also employ strong religious rhetoric and appeals to religious interests in denouncing their enemies and exhorting their own followers. This much I've already conceded. The pressing question is whether such rhetoric, along with other considerations, means that in those circumstances, religion is the cause or primary cause of such terrorist acts. Obviously, a good deal turns on what we mean by cause, and much philosophical ink has been spilled on this topic. One favourite idea behind much ordinary thought about cause is that one event would not have occurred without the occurrence of the other antecedent event, or as the 18th century philosopher David Hume put it, in terms of objects rather than events, where, if the first object had not been, the second never had existed. This pregnant remark, though apparently in conflict with Hume's official regularity theory of causation, has spawned a for or against industry of counterfactual theories, given momentum by David Lewis's analysis of counterfactual propositions in terms of possible worlds. Clearly some idea along the lines, if it wasn't for X, we wouldn't have had Y, is at work when people talk of X causing Y but it's a very patchy net in which to catch all that can be meant by such remarks. Usually the X in question covers much more than one factor, or to put it differently, if X is a single factor, then it will seldom trigger Y without being conjoined with several other factors or conditions. So the possibility exists uh, that, uh, uh, aside from those many cases where religion plays no role at all in producing terrorist acts, the religious factor where significant remains nonetheless merely one element conjoined with several others, and ignoring those others is fraught with risk, both intellectual and practical. Often the talk of what causes terrorist acts is concerned with salience, with what the speaker or the context finds the most significant factor in bringing about the acts. But the significance is very interest and context dependent, which is not to deny its objective status. That said, there may seem to be clearly cases in which religion has played such a prominent part in bringing about significant episodes of terrorism, such as, for instance, the various Christian crusades that were waged against parts of the Muslim world in the Middle Ages. More recently, of course, the religious-loaded uh, denunciation of infidels that accompanied uh, the ISIS massacres and enslavements of various groups regarded as hostile to the group's religious outlook provide more evidence. The ISIS terrorist attacks upon the Yazidi sect, for instance, seem a primary case for religiously caused terrorism. But even here, one must not ignore secular aspects of the attacks, such as the quest for political domination of an area or the gaining of slaves, including sexual slaves. Religion and increased ferocity. Another important claim about religion in a good deal of academic literature on terrorism is that even if it's often too simplistic to claim a sole or critical role for some forms of religion in terrorist activity, the appeal to religion when it does occur serves to make for more sustained and vicious resort to terrorism than is the case with predominantly non-religious motivations. The idea is that religious doctrines appealing to the support of an omnipotent God and perhaps the rewards of an afterlife make an absolutist commitment to unrestrained violence that is unique in religious outlooks. 
Mark Jergensmeyer, for instance, uh, who is a commentator on uh, terrorist matters generally, um, seeking a middle path between the view that religion does cause terrorism and the view that it does not, argues that religion is at least a problematic factor in the mix of motivations because of the divine dimension it brings to the conflict. As he puts it, and I've got this on your handout, religion brings more to the conflict than simply a repository of symbols and an aura of divine support. It problematizes a conflict through its abiding absolutism, its justification for violence, and its ultimate images of warfare that demonize opponents and cast the conflict in trans-historical terms. There are three claims, at least, about religion tied together in Jürgensmeier's uh, comment. Sorry, there are four claims about religion tied together in Jürgensmeier's comment, and they're distinct but related. The first concerns... No, sorry, three. The first concerns the role of absolutism, the second, the justification of violence, the third, the demonisation of opponents. I'll examine these in turn with an eye to the relations between them, because they're not totally uh, unconnected. The idea of religion's absolutism has a great vogue, but its widespread acceptance is inversely proportional to its clarity. What is often meant, though seldom explained, is something epistemological to the uh, effect that the religious hold their beliefs with more certainty and conviction than the non-religious, and they're wrong to do so. Depending on the beliefs in question, this is or ought to be plainly false. Many atheists and agnostics have just, a firm, uh, just as firm a conviction as any religious in their beliefs that rape is a great wrong to the victim, that democracy is preferable to tyranny, that slavery is evil, that friendship is a great good, and much else, including for some, that religion is dangerous and full of false beliefs. And as the philosopher G.E. Moore famously argued, there are a range of obvious truths, evident as he believed to common sense, on which nearly everyone is adamant, such as the facts that all my audience here today have a head, and only one head each, that none of us was born yesterday, that fire burns, that logical reasoning is mostly better than guesswork, and so on. These and many other convictions, moral and otherwise, are too, too commonplace to require much notice, but nonetheless they're facts on which absolute conviction is necessary to ordinary life, and even more significantly, the very existence of reasonable doubt, since for doubt to be reasonable, it must have a firm foundation. Baseless doubt is just neurotic. Moreover, deep and firm, absolute moral convictions amongst some religious people constituted one central reason why the ghastly business of the slave trade in the West was eventually outlawed. The influence of crude versions of ethical and factual relativism upon popular culture, often fostered by some postmodernist simplicities filtering down from the academy, can obscure these realities. What is really possible to extract from the sloppy allegations of absolutism is a genuine worry about fanaticism. Fanaticism is an intellectual and moral vice, though there is some complexity in assessing its nature. It can be a mere term of abuse, the application of which tends to be more in the eye of the beholder than anchored to clear criteria. In this, it's much like the application of stubborn, whereby your belief, your behaviour evokes that adjective, and my own identical actions invoke instead from me the description resolute. Nonetheless, although we should be cautious in throwing the term around, there is a real phenomenon of fanaticism and a disturbing one. The Oxford Shorter Dictionary defines it in terms of an excessive zeal or enthusiasm, especially for an extreme cause, and it mentions religion and politics as areas where the term is commonly in play. The two key qualifiers here are excessive and extreme, and their application is clearly open to debatable judgment in context. Is someone who shows uncommon enthusiasm 
for abolishing the practice of enslaving women for prostitution, a fanatic. Both excessive and extreme express negative evaluations, one on a disproportionate degree of enthusiasm or dedication, the other on the wrongness or dubiousness of a, co of a cause. Unusual acts of singular dedication may make many of us who lead cosy and, singular li and regular lives feel uncomfortable, but they're not thereby fanatical in this pejorative sense. Uh, Father Damien de Voister's selfless life of service to the leper colony on the island of Molokai was a dedicated commitment that's not for everyone, but it's not thereby fanatical. British politicians thought Mahatma Gandhi a fanatic for his campaign of non-violent resistance to imperial rule in India, but that expresses their bias rather than objective judgment of his cause and methods. This is not to deny that religions, like many other outlooks, have been involved in fanaticism. But fanaticism is a common risk of the implementation of belief systems generally, as is evident in the zealous prosecution of their cause by many free market enthusiasts in the recent history of capitalism, not to mention the even more dangerous fanaticisms sometimes involved in 19th century imperialism and 20th century uh, totalitarianism. Some forms of fanaticism don't involve bad causes, but rather a distorted pursuit of good ones. And here they're connected in complex ways with the phenomenon of, of moralism that I've explored elsewhere. I can talk a bit about that, but I'll leave it out. Avoiding fanaticism does not involve a total retreat from conviction, but holding the right convictions in the right way. The Australian painter Sheila Bowen seemed aware of this when she worried, quote, the difficulty is to avoid the perils of fanaticism as well as the paralysis that comes of seeing both sides at once. And G.K. Chesterton, who perhaps had rather too many firm convictions, was nonetheless right uh, about vacuous talk of an open mind when he vividly remarked, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. Otherwise, it's more akin to a sewer, taking in all things equally. But surely it will be said, fanaticism is a more likely feature of outlooks that claim the authority of God for their beliefs and practices than those without such recourse. Jürgensmeyer relies on this proposition for his claim about absolutism, but also for his insistence that religion uniquely imposes an image of cosmic war between those fighting a spiritual battle against merely worldly opponents. Even Louise Richardson, Vice-Chancellor of this university, who is one of the more nu nuanced commentators on terrorism, and who argues that the picture of religion as the cause of terrorist acts is simplistic and mistaken, even in the case of um, Islamic fundamentalism terrorism, also insists that the religious elements in some forms of terrorism <coughs> produce certain distinctive features, such as reluctance to compromise or negotiate. Such terrorist groups, she says, exhibit a tendency, quote, to be more fanatical, more willing to inflict mass casualties, and better able to enact unassailable commitment from their adherents. Again, this raises the question of the necessity of theism for religion, but leaving that aside, it does seem plausible that people who are confident in the Almighty's support would be spurred to perhaps excessive determination in their pursuit of objectives they regard as divinely endorsed. Certainly, uh, the non-fanatical Father Damien attributed his steadfast dedication to the welfare of the lepers on the island of Molokai to his conviction that God had guided him to this role. So if people wrongly think that God wants them to pursue some evil path, they may do so with determined energy. Must, I think, be readily agreed that the invocation of God's support has often been a spur to fanaticism. But two considerations somewhat soften the force of this argument. The first is that utilising God in an unworthy cause is a form of blasphemy which should be condemned on religious grounds. From within Christianity, to take one example, 
There is plenty of scope to caution against the invocation of God on behalf of our determined pursuit of objectives that cause unjustified harm to others. And indeed, this has often enough happened in the history of Christianity, as with the denunciations by many courageous Spanish theologians of the conquistadors who pillaged in the newly discovered Americas of the 16th century, and of the theological reasons often used by those invaders and their political sponsors for the violent conquest. The invaders claimed a right of violent conquest because the natives that sought to, they sought to dispossess and plunder were pagans and hence had no legitimate uh, no political legitimacy to their land and its treasures. Among the objectors to this were the Spanish Dominicans Bishop Bartolomeo de las Casas and the Thomist theologian Antonio Montesinos. Montesinos denounced the genocidal activities of the gold-crazed Spanish colon colonists and publicly preached against that what he called, quote, the cruelty and tyranny that you practice on these innocent people. Tell me, by what right or justice do you hold these Indians in such cruel and horrible slavery? By what right do you wage such detestable wars on these people who live mildly and peacefully on their own lands, where you have consumed infinite numbers of them with unheard of murders and desolations, unquote. Secondly, some despoilers with non-religious ideologies have had as much fanatical drive as any religious enthusiasts when it comes to spectacular resorts to violent persecution, as the history of the 20th century illustrates abundantly. Stalin, Mao, Pot, Pol Pot, as already noted, did well enough in the fanaticism stakes without resort to divine assistance. And when it comes to opposition to negotiation and compromise, the Allied powers in World War II were as adamantly opposed to negotiation and compromise to end the war with the Axis powers as any religiously inspired group. They ruthlessly pursued unconditional surrender and were happy to destroy by terror bombing, as Churchill himself called it, vast swathes of civilian occupied cities in Germany and Japan in defense of liberal democracy. Nor were the leaders and many followers of Nazi Germany and Japan lacking in fanatical pursuit of their war aims, even when virtually certain defeat was looming. And their commitment to vicious tactics was as great as any sanctioned by religious zeal. It seems that support for whatever it is that you regard as the highest value or sanction, be it history, ethnicity, science, the proletariat, the nation, democratic liberty, the super race, or manifest destiny, will do to drive unrelentingly some fanatical enterprise, especially when it coheres with the usual human instincts for power, glory, and riches. Jurgensmeyer emphasizes the way that religious commitments can instill apparently unrealistic expectations for victory and commitment to endless struggle. He cites a conversation he had with Abdul Aziz Rantizi, the late leader of the political wing of Hamas, in which Rantizi replied to his insistence that Palestinian military efforts could never defeat the military might of Israel by saying that Palestine had previously been occupied for 200 years and his comrades could now endure at least as long. Jurgensmeyer attributes to this, this conviction to confidence in God's support, but he doesn't quote Rantizi invoking God, and confidence in the power to prevail in the long term can come from many sources and has sustained secular revolutionary movements of all sorts, notably in the 20th century, those inspired by Marxism. In fact, much of the argument about the special motivational power of religion displays a common contemporary mindset amongst intellectuals that finds idealism and confidence about the future difficult to sustain or even comprehend. But this may itself be a symptom of cultural malaise rather than a form of, of maturity. In any case, there have been many non-religious people who have remained firm in their ethical commitments and endeavours, even where the odds against success were high. No doubt some of the British citizens and their leaders who persisted resolutely against overwhelming odds in the military 
and political struggle against the Nazi war machine in the early years of World War II were sustained by religious motives, but many others drew upon secular resources of hope and conviction. Jerkinsmeyer also urges a close connection between religious outlooks and the demonization of the enemy. But once more, World War I had plenty of that on both sides without a strong religious element. Both Germans and Britons were predominantly Christian, and what differences of religious doctrine were involved played no part in the causes or prosecution of the war. Nonetheless, vilification of the Hun persisted in British propaganda in a way parallel to that by which ISIS more recently vilified and demonized the enemy infidel. Another claim by Jurgensmeyer, echoed by others in the terrorist literature, is that religious convictions also lead to the endorsement of more extreme and immoral violent measures than would otherwise be the case. Religious warriors have certainly behaved in morally atrocious ways, as in the medieval crusades, where gross violations of widely accepted norms against atrocity were common, as when in 1099, Western Catholic crusaders massacred Muslims and Jews not sparing, quote, the elderly, the women, or the sick. But again, as we earlier saw in the discussion of absolutism, the existence of immoral ferocity in violent conflict is not the sole province of those with religious commitments. As, as Dermot McCulloch commented in the course of discussing the, and denouncing the violent horrors committed by religious people, it's true, he said, that those who have rejected traditional forms of religion, including Hitler and Stalin, have perpetrated, perpetrated atrocities as heinous as those committed in the name of God or gods, unquote. A more recent example is the way in which the moral prohibition on and deep repugnance against torture was so readily abandoned in the West <coughs> by some military and security practitioners with the support of many secular liberal intellectuals. The war on terror provided the context for this, and in many places the resort to hitherto unthinkable practices gained widespread popular endorsement. No hint of religious motivation here, but plenty of democratic and self-protective ferocity in the name of civic duty and national emergency. Uh, I've got three more pages. Well, I think we can handle three more pages. Maybe, maybe it's four. <laughs> 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 uh, we've dealt with Jürgen first and third claims, and since they over overlap somewhat, so is my treatment of them. His second claim is rather different and needs some unpacking. Though on one construal, my response to it echoes responses to the first and third claim. The second claim is that religion is particularly problematic with respect to terrorism because of, quote, its justification of violence, unquote. This raises difficulties of interpretation since in the first place there's widespread acceptance beyond religious circles that violence can be justified in certain circumstances. Hence the idea that religions have offered justifications for violence shows in itself nothing distinctive about religion. Indeed, only complete pacifists reject all justification for violence. On another interpretation, it may be that Jürgensmeyer means that religions offer unsatisfactory justifications for political violence like terrorism or war. The restriction to uh, political violence is plausible because terrorism, for instance, is the topic of this discussion. But some religions, for instance the Quakers, offers no, offer no justifications for any forms of political violence. Others offer justifications for some forms of political violence in some circumstances, but not in others. The questions then are whether the justifications they offer in some circumstances are, for violence in some circumstances are morally and intellectually respectable and also whether they're distinctive or similar to respectable justifications offered by the non-religion. These are questions that can't be answered by some comprehensive reference to religions as such but must be treated on a case-by-case -case basis. In Christianity, for instance, some of the early Christians were pacifists 
and then a just war doctrine was developed and later influenced with common justificatory currents with secular Western thinkers uh, and some Eastern thinkers uh, and the fashioning of international law. There are two important features to note about the complex uh, tradition of the just war in the West. The first is that it's always placed restrictions on the right to go to war and that these restrictions became more stringent over the course of the development of that doctrine. And the second is that the tradition, although it arose within Christianity, always relied upon appeal to common reasoning or in its later manifestations what was called natural law. That tradition was certainly at times polluted by the concept of holy war, but later medieval theorists gradually removed religious war from the scope of just war, and with it the idea that the pursuit of supernatural ends sanctioned the use of otherwise immoral means, such as the slaughtering of children. In modern times, many Christians have been adamant about the stringency of the restrictions. So, for instance, religious people within allied countries were amongst the few who criticised the devastating tactics of their own leadership in the area of bombing campaigns aimed at the slaughter of civilians and wholesale destruction of German and Japanese cities. The Anglican Bishop of Chichester, George Pell, not George Pell, George Bell, repeatedly condemned the bombing in speeches in the House of Lords and elsewhere during the war, and the American Jesuit priest John C. Ford, in 1944, wrote an article in stern condemnation of the practice. Ford's article marked an influential moment in the later development of aspects of the Catholic peace movement, especially with regard to nuclear deterrence. It's not been my intention to downplay the evil involved in the use of religion to support resort to terrorist acts, nor excuse in any way those avowedly religious people who've been moved too often by their understanding of faith to condone or perpetrate terrorist acts. I've been concerned rather to highlight confusions and misleading implications of common talk about religious war and terrorism, particularly the ways in which non-religious aspects and factors involved in the causation and motivation of terrorist acts can be uh, uh, obscured by the concentration upon religious affiliation and rhetoric surrounding some terrorist perpetrators. This tendency is reinforced when the perpetrators are foreign and can be cast as foreign to the home culture. The idea that religion or some particular religion is inherently prone to violence can also impede understanding of the cautionary attitudes to violence or outright rejection of it within the religion in question. Even when religions countenance justified violence, as, as we've seen, they usually put restrictions on the justifications that can apply. Those cautionary attitudes where they exist can be cited and deployed against the use of religion for terrorist purposes by other religious people or by non-religious. Governments have increasingly acknowledged this option, but have often been reluctant to commit serious resources, I'm thinking of Western governments, to commit serious resources to foster the deployment, and in some cases have made their acknowledgement and efforts seem heavily condescending. Possibly the most condescending and potentially counterproductive such effort was that of Australia's former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, in a national security address on February the 23rd, 2015. Abbott first accused Australian Muslim leaders of not speaking out enough against terrorism, and then added, quote, I've often heard Western leaders describe Islam as a religion of peace. I wish more Muslim leaders would say that more often and mean it, unquote. Entirely gratuitous and mean it was not only offensive and unsupported by any evidence of insincerity. Uh, Abbott was not given to the uh, provision of evidence about anything, really. It could only impede efforts at sympathetic engagement with the Muslim community uh, to help combat what inclinations to terrorist activity existed in a section of that community. Thank you.